You are now listening to the December 23rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is Nicole with Let's Read the Bible. People who become wiser listen to direction and advice and follow them well. They are always ready to listen and improve themselves. They know what they lack, so they search for ways to fulfill what they lack and improve themselves by following those ways. On the contrary, when people cannot see their shortcomings and do not even acknowledge them, they cannot improve. They stay stagnant because they believe they have nothing that lack. In verse 15 from Proverbs chapter 12 that we are going to read today says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. When we think about it, there is no one who is perfect and complete. All of us may have something that we are good at, but there are certainly things that we are not good at. That is why there is always room for improvement, to a positive direction that is. What about you? Do you believe you are righteous? Do you believe there is nothing that you need to change or fix? Some of you may be offended, but the Bible says people like that are fools. And the Bible says the wise listen to advice. It does not mean we should listen to what others say and follow them blindly without our own will when it says the wise listen to advice. It means how wise people transform their lives in God's words that become standards for everything receiving them with joy that will transform us to the ones that will make God joyous. I hope we can all become the wise who will happily receive advice that will lead us to the way of holiness and live our lives according to the vice. For that reason, I recommend reading today's reading, Proverbs chapter 12. It is because it is full of advice that will lead us to live righteous lives. Let's read Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 to 28 together. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. A good man obtains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices he condemns. No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be moved. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of twisted mind is despised. Better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack bread. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever is wicked covets the spoil of evildoers, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. An evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, 
but the righteous escapes from trouble. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hands comes back to him. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters deceit. There was one whose rash words are like sore thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of the fools proclaims folly. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. In the path of righteousness is life, and in this pathway there is no death. We just read Proverbs chapter 12, verses 1 to 28 together. Oh, come, let us.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is, When Christians Act Like Everyone Else. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. We're going to be looking at the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons we're going to, a couple of reasons. Number one is I feel like I'm always referring back to the kings in some way, shape, or form. And so it would be good for us just to familiarize ourselves with them. But we can learn so much from them. Their strengths, their weaknesses, as well as their victories, their failures. There's so much to learn. But here's the best part about studying the kings. The Bible says uh, that the Old Testament is full of types and shadows. Meaning, when you read the Old Testament, you see the New Testament, but in types and shadows. And the kings of Israel, as amazing as some of them were and as bad as some of them were, they all, in a sense, point us forward to the true king of kings. And so this sermon series... Even though it's about the Old Testament kings, it's really about Jesus. Jesus is going to be the center of even this sermon series. So I hope you're blessed. I hope you come. Get word out. Watch online if you miss any of them. And it's going to be great. This is going to be a little bit longer than our normal sermon series, by the way. It's going to run 11 weeks because there are 40 kings that we could... That's a long series. I don't think you want to do 40, so we're going to get it down to 11. Sound good? So on that note, let me pray for us as we start this series. Well, gracious Father in heaven, as we now open your word and get into the study of the kings of Israel, God, and the true king of kings, Jesus, may our hearts be blessed and may you be glorified. God, refine us now, encourage us, set our hearts ablaze. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So the history of the kings of Israel isn't necessarily a good one. And one of the main reasons for this is the majority of the kings that ruled over Israel were wicked. There were 40, about 40 kings that ruled over Israel and only eight of them were good. Now, some of the kings were more wicked than others, but even the less wicked ones were still a burden on the nation. It was bad for the nation's overall well-being. And you want to know why that is? Because whenever, and you guys are going to say amen to this, whenever you have somebody wicked ruling over you, it's a drag on your heart, isn't it? It is. And it could be somebody at work. It could be somebody that's put over you at work or somebody in the government or wherever it is. When you have somebody in authority over you that is not, their heart's not right with God. They're ruling from a bad place. It's no good for anyone. And you know how I know that? Because the Bible says as much. <laughs> Proverbs 29.2 says this, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. When the influence of the righteous increase, whether it be their rule or their influence, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. The people groan. So that's so very true. Of course, when you got a king coming to power 3,000 years ago in Israel, you couldn't just vote them out of office. (laughs) They were there for as long as they lived. They either had to die of natural causes, they either had to be assassinated, or they had to be conquered by another country. Listen, imagine having somebody in the presidency, somebody in the White House for 40 or more years. Listen, listen, I don't even care what side of the aisle you're on on this one. That doesn't sound good at all, does it? Um, But 
The first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon, they each reigned for 40 years. So three kings reigned over a 120-year period, just three of them out of the 40. So that's pretty incredible. I know some of you just went into shock. I get the defibrillators out, paddles out. I'm like having a presidency in there for 40 years. It's like, shock me back to life. But you want to know what's funny? You can kind of relate to this. We can Because there's a growing chorus of voices in this country demanding term limits upon politicians like senators who get into office and can't, we can't get them out. Amen? Do I hear an amen to that? So I was raised in the Bay Area in Diane Feinstein. I, I was there when she became mayor. She was a pretty lady. She was awesome. They're wheeling her in now. You know, and it's, and it's not just her. It's the Republicans too. It's like, oh my goodness, how long are these people? Literally, Diane Feinstein, and I'm not picking on her, um, she gave power attorney to her children over her and is yet still voting in the Senate. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> I can't take care of myself, but I'm going to take care of this country. But it's on the Republican side as well. So it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. We have people that get into office and are there forever. Now, here's the point. Kings don't just step aside. The kings of Israel didn't just step aside. They didn't concede power on purpose. No way. When they came to power, they held power again until they were... They either died, were overthrown, or conquered. All except one. There was one king who ruled over Israel, who, when the people demanded change, willingly stepped aside and gave the people what they wanted. And this is where any conversation about the kings of Israel really needs to begin. And you know where that is? It's right here. It's Israel's rejection of God as their king. So a little background is important at this point. So from the moment that God called Abraham, you know, Abraham is the founding patriarch of the Jewish nation. So at the Tower of Babel, God, remember the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages of the people and they spread out. And God called one man, Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. And remember, Jacob wrestled with God. There's this fascinating story in in the book of Genesis about Jacob wrestling with God. And Jacob is given a new name, and that name is Israel, Israel, which means Israel means wrestles or contends. El is the name of God, wrestles with God. And then Israel went on, or Jacob went on to have 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. But here's the point. Ever since God called Abraham to be the founding father of the nation of Israel, God reigned as their king. He had been very faithful to them. Even When they had been slaves in Egypt, God, when they cried out, miraculously led them out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He brought them into the promised land. And you want to know the best part about it? Brace yourselves. Listen to this. They were brought into a land where they were 100% free to build their lives, raise families, own land, engage in commerce, do whatever they wanted, build hot tubs, go golfing, whatever. (laughs) But here's the best part with no one other than God ruling over them. No bureaucrats, no politicians. It was God and the people of Israel in the promised land. Does that sound pretty good? That sounds great. And in this way, the nation of Israel would stand apart from all the other nations. How would that be? It's this. Israel's king would be God himself. All the other nations had kings, finite, frail men ruling over them. One nation, Israel, would stand apart. They were to be a people set apart. They were to be a light to the nations. They were to be set apart. And one of the primary ways that they were set apart from everyone else was God himself was their king. But even under such favorable circumstances, Israel struggled to obey God. And so he leads them into the promised land. And for the next three to 400 years, Israel, we go through this season where Israel disobeys God. He then disciplines them. 
And then usually by bringing a foreign power to discipline them. And then he raises up a judge or a ruler, not a judge like we know today that sits behind the bench with a gavel, a judge meaning a ruler, uh, somebody with authority that would rise up, deliver the Israelites and restore order. But that person was always temporary. God would raise them up. And then once they did what they needed to do, they stepped aside. And this is how God reigned over his people. We read about this in the book of Judges. That's the book of Judges. It's what happens next that not only changed Israel's history, folks, it changed world history. The Israelites started looking at the nations around them. And listen to this. They made the worst political decision in the history of the world. Now, some of you are going, no, 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 no. I've seen some pretty bad political decisions, right? We all have, right? Some of you are older than others, so you've seen more bad political decisions than others, right? Down through the years. But listen, folks, today we're going to be looking at literally the worst political decision in the history of the world, a decision that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So church, it's on that note. It's my honor to take us to the word of God this morning. Hear the word of God. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And then Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, obey. And this is one of the most tragic verses in all the Bible is here. You're about to read the worst political decision in all of human history. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Amen. Church, hear the word of God this morning. So the Bible, of course, is full of people making really bad mistakes. There's tons of examples. And at the heart of all of these bad mistakes are a few common characteristics. And one of those common characteristics is this. It is the rejection of what God has to offer in favor of what the world has to offer. And this is a perfect example what Israel did of this very thing. Listen, what I'm about to say, some of you are not going to believe me because what I'm about to say is uh, you're going to put it in the category of unicorn or leprechaun. You're going to go, that doesn't exist. Okay, you guys ready? There is such a thing as a perfect politician. but there's only one and it's God. There's only one in the history of the world. There'll only ever be one. It's God, but there is such a thing as a perfect politician and Israel had him. Israel had that. They had a King who was, listen to this, all powerful. Listen, if you could have a politician that was all powerful, all knowing, altogether good in every possible way, would you want it? Of course. And Israel had it, yet they rejected him in favor of what the world has to offer. And what did the world have to offer? A finite, fallen, frail human being like all the other nations had. See, Israel did what we're all prone to do. We can't cast stones at Israel because we're prone to do what they did. And you know what they did? Israel let their earthly desires crowd out an eternal perspective. That's what they did. They started looking at what the world had and they go, that little seed that was planted in them, they kept watering it. They kept thinking about it. They, and pretty soon it grew and it took over their lives. Israel let their earthly desires crowd out an eternal perspective. And before I go any further, let me stop and ask you, let me stop and ask myself, are there currently any earthly desires in you that are keeping you from having an eternal perspective? See, Israel's story is really our story. We can look at them and go, well, that happened 3,000 years ago. What does that have to do with us, folks? It has everything to do with us. 
Now, here's the crazy part. What makes this whole set of circumstances so incredible is that God goes out of his way to warn them just how bad it's going to be to have an earthly politician over them. And I think we'd all agree, even the best of earthly politicians is a far cry from God. Amen? (laughs) Right, amen. I don't care, again, what side of the aisle you are on, this is what we're dealing with. Just listen to the word of God and God's warning to how bad it's going to be. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Here you are. Brace yourself. This is how bad it's going to be. He will take. First words out of Samuel's mouth. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before what? His chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow what? His ground and to reap who? What? His harvest and to make his implements of war. Now listen to this. And the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the 10th of your grain and your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a 10th of your flocks and you shall be what? His slaves. Now, let me just stop right here, folks. You do understand that in this lifetime, you are a slave to someone. It doesn't matter. We as Christians are doulos. That's the Greek word. We are slaves, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're not a slave to Jesus, don't think you're not a bond servant or a slave to some, someone else. It could be you're a slave to yourself, your own passions, emotions. It could be somebody in your life. It could be that you're, you're a slave to the people that are in authority over you, whatever. You're a slave to somebody. What God is telling the Israelites is you were bond servants of me, Just know, you know, when you walk away from me, you're not walking into freedom. You're walking into another type of slavery, a slavery that's far worse. And by the way, that's the point. Folks, when you walk out from under the mighty hand of God, you might think there's freedom there. There's not freedom there. There's never freedom from being under the mighty hand of God. And in that day, you now listen to this. God even says, okay, this is how bad it's going to be. And here's what's going to happen. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, that you have chosen for yourself. And I love this part, but the Lord will not answer you in that day, nor should he. You deserve it. (laughs) Knuckleheads. You walked away from the one thing that everybody wants, a perfect politician, a perfect king, a perfect ruler. You walked away from it. But listen to this. God warns them, this is how bad it's going to be. He says, you're going to regret it. That's what that verse is saying. He goes, I'm telling you right now, you're going to regret it. But what do the people do? Listen to this. But the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like, here's the kicker, all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. Again, church, hear the word of God. Listen, isn't it amazing that even when we're fully aware of the consequences of choosing what the world has to offer, we still choose what the world has to offer? Amen? We can point fingers at them. You know how many times I've done this in my life? 10 million. 10 million times I've done this. I know what the world, the world offers me something. I know I'm going to regret that. I know the consequences of it. Let's just go do it. You know, I'm like a lamb to the slaughter. 
You want a perfect example of this very thing? Here it is. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will or she will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Yet despite such warnings like this, people fall into adultery all the time. Sometimes even very godly people. As a matter of fact, we're going to look at in a few weeks, one of the good kings of Israel that fell into adultery. Can you think of his name? David. King David. David knew full full well that there was consequences. He just ignored them. He was blind to them. But just like David, the world is going to set similar things before each of us. And if we are not incredibly careful, folks, here's what's going to happen. We are going to let our earthly desires crowd out an eternal perspective. This is precisely what happened to the nation of Israel. The grass seemed greener on the other side of the fence. But just like I said, folks, listen to this. The grass is always greenest under the mighty hand of God. It always is. You're going to look out at what the world has to offer and you're going to go, the grass is greener over there. It's a mirage. The grass is always greenest when you stay under the mighty hand of God, right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. You're always best under the mighty hand of God. Don't fall for what the world has to offer you. And yet we know this, and yet we so often do this. We walk out from under the mighty hand of God going, I think that's a little bit greener over there. And what happens? We go over there, we taste of it, and we go, it's horrible out here. We come back under the mighty hand of God. And even though God had warned the Israelites of everything that the earthly king was going to take from them, impose upon them, demand from them, they still pressed forward without giving it a second thought. Look again. He will take the best. He will take a tenth. He was going to take everything from you. Unlike God, who requires nothing and needs nothing, an earthly king would require a massive amount of resources to take care of his monarchy his palace, his personal needs, his chariots, his court. Listen to this. Israel rejected a king who had everything to give and asked for a king who had everything to take. Folks, that's why I say this is the worst political decision in the history of the world. Side note, we see a similar thing happening today, not just, not in this country. I already talked about how we want term limits in this country. A similar thing is happening in England with regard to their monarchy. I watched a news segment a while back. There's a group of people who are watchdogs over how much the monarchy in England costs the people, the burden that it places on the people. And they're like, enough is enough. So even today, 3,000 years after this, we see monarchies being burdens upon the people. Now this raises the all-important question. Why in the world would the Israelites walk away from the perfect politician to walk into the arms of fallen men. Well, our text today tells us why. Again, look, but the people refused to obey the voice of of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, and here it is, that we may be like all the nations. Israel wanted a king because they wanted to belong. That's it. So instead of being, listen, here's the key, instead of being a light to the nations, they were to be set apart from the world, to be different. And one of the key ways they were to be different is they walked by faith, not by sight, serving the king of kings. And the world should have looked at Israel and said, we want you have. Instead, the world, Israel looked at the world and said, no, we want what you have. So instead of being a light to the nations, Israel ended up being just like the nations. 
Now, according to our text, they wanted a king who would judge over them. Let's be honest, how much easier it is to submit to the rule of a king that you can see with your eyes than one that calls you to walk by faith. And folks, it's no different from us today. The call upon us is the same call that was upon Israel, walk by faith and not by sight. Trust your king. But apparently a stubborn people like the Israelites needed a physical king to control their appetite and their behaviors. Why do I say that? Because we read this in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Now, in those days, there was no earthly king ruling over Israel because in the time of the Judges, there was a king ruling over Israel. Who was it? It was God. Yeah, Israel always had a king. What they didn't always have was an earthly king. And so in those days, there was no earthly king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, it takes faith to walk by faith, to trust God. Israel couldn't do it. They needed an earthly taskmaster to keep them in line. Our text also says that they wanted an earthly king who would go out before us and fight our battles. Again, how much easier it is to follow a king into battle that you can see with your eyes than one that calls you to walk by faith. And yet, even though God had never lost a battle, right? God had never lost a battle. Who does the battle belong to? The battle belongs to the Lord. Even though God had never lost a battle, Israel said, we'll trade you in God because we want to follow a king that we can see with our eyes. Because walking by faith is hard, especially in times of battle. Because if you read the Bible, you know that when Israel went into battle, God often did crazy things. Remember, there was the one time that he, there was 30 some odd thousand men ready to go into battle. And God keeps dismissing them down till there's 300 of them, right? 300. And he goes, you go into battle with these 300. And of course, they, they won. It's, it happens just as God said it was. But listen, folks, it takes faith to follow king like that. It takes faith to follow a king like that. I'm going to tell you right now, folks, the battle is raging today. We are in a war just like they were. Who does the battle belong to in this generation for the church? Folks, it does not belong in a political party. The battle does not belong in Washington. It, It doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to our God. And either we're going to look at the world and go, we have to do what you're doing because the battle belongs out there. No, the battle belongs to God. We're going to look to him and you're welcome to join us. It's no wonder that Jeremiah says this, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. The worst political decision in all of human history. You know what it resulted in? For the next 500 years, Saul is appointed king right around 1,000 years before Christ. 1,050 is when Saul is appointed king. For the next 500 years until Israel is ultimately conquered by the Babylonians, Israel would be, for the next 500 years, Israel would be ruled by 40 kings, all of all, all fallen, finite, frail, most of whom were wicked, all of them far from perfect. That's what happened. That was the result of saying, I'm going to walk out from here. The grass seems greener over there. What they have over there seems to be better than what God's offering here. It's not. The grass is always greenest under the mighty hand of God. Now, Here's why this matters to you and me. See, the pressing question for the church today is no different from the question, the, the pressing question of the, for the Israelites 3,000 years ago. And it's this. Will the church in the 21st century embrace our calling to be a light to the nations or will we give into temptation and become just like the nations? And if you haven't kept an eye on what's happening in the church, 
It is the latter that is happening, that we are becoming just like the nations. Israel was to be a nation set apart. And so is the church. Do you know what the word church means? It comes from the Greek word ekklesia. There it is. It comes from two Greek words, ek meaning out and kaleo meaning called. We're the called out ones. We're to be called out, set apart. We're totally different from the world. This is our calling. Israel was called to that and they walked away from it and said, we want to be just like the nations. The question is in the 21st century, the church, we're the called out ones. What are we going to do? Will we walk by courageous faith before our God, remaining faithful, walking obediently before him, or will we give into the temptation to go, you know what? We really want the world to like us. We're like adolescent children. I mean, we, not this necessarily this church, but the church at large, we're like adolescent children. It's like, oh, we just want the world to like us so much. Better that one man, God like us, one God, that God like us and the whole world like us, right? I'd rather stand with God alone than, when the, than having the whole world in my corner. It's almost like the church is embarrassed to be set apart. As a result, what has happened? The church has embraced all sorts of crazy things in the past 10, 20, 30 years. We started watering down the gospel because we wanted the world to like us. We started using carnal methods to attract people to church because we were afraid that the gospel wasn't enough. We stopped calling people to count the cost of following Jesus. And we told them that Jesus will make your life better. No, following Jesus, you count the cost. You give your life away. It's a life of persecution and service to your king. Do you know what the nation of Israel was when God was their king? They were a nation that, they were like a sore, they stuck out like a sore thumb. Again, Israel, those two words, El is the name of God, Israel. This was the nation that had wrestled with God and had been set apart, different from all the other nations. They were to stick out like a sore thumb, but they didn't because they didn't want to walk by faith. They wanted to walk by sight. Israel let their earthly desires crowd out an eternal perspective. And that's the point, folks. What will the church do in this generation? Folks, the last thing, you know, the last thing that the nations 3,000 years ago needed was for Israel to cave. The nations, if they, if they had only known, they would have rushed to Israel and say, stand your ground and we're going to join you. But Israel gave them the worst gift that they could possibly give them, the worst political decision in the history of the world. They said, we're going to be just like you. The last thing that the world needs from the church today is for us to buckle and cave and try to get their approval. But let's circle back. Earlier, I asked you personally, is there an earthly desire that is keeping you from having an eternal perspective? We can talk about the church at large, but let's talk about our hearts in particular. Do you know what 1 Timothy says? But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. In other words, being here under God's mighty hand, being godly and content is of great gain. You know what that means? This is where the grass is the greenest. It is. The grass is always greenest under the mighty hand of God. It's when we walk out there and go, no, I'm pretty sure the grass is great. It's not greener out there. Don't walk out from the God that has everything to give to go to a world that will only take from you. That's the heart of this message. Is a lack of contentment keeping you from having an eternal perspective? Are you looking at other people, looking at the world? Is there something in you that is just distracting you from realizing why you're here, why God has put you here, and the absolute gravity and weight of the importance of your life? You are here to be a light to the nations. You are here to be Jesus to the people around you. They say that you will be the only Jesus some people meet. Folks, think about that. That is so true. 
The gospel that comes from your mouth will be the only gospel some people will hear in this lifetime. That is how incredibly important you are. Don't let anything distract you from that calling. This life is but a breath. You're, you're here today. You're gone tomorrow. You will be called to an account and you will be rewarded richly for your faithfulness. Remain faithful at all cost. Amen. Walk before your king in courageous faith. Don't let anything distract you. I don't care how bright and shiny it is, what the world sets before you. You stay here. All stay here. Psalm 37, listen to this, 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Go ahead and look at the people of this world and combine them all together. All of their wealth, all of the shiny stuff they have, everything that they have accumulated together isn't as much as the little that the righteous has when the righteous are content with the little that they have. Amen? Amen. Paul warned Timothy about the cravings of our flesh. He said this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, the love of money, but there's a million other cravings in us that some have wandered. They lost their eternal perspective. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, folks, it's so easy to look at what we don't have and forget all that God has given to us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father above. This is why the Bible tells us to continually give thanks. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in what? All circumstances. Listen, if Israel had had a thankful heart instead of a wandering eye, they never would have rejected God as their king. But same goes for us. If we but have a thankful heart instead of a wandering eye, we will remain faithful to the Lord. Folks, just thank God every day. I've said it before, I said it again. I have a blind brother. If you're ever having a bad day, just praise God that you can see. And I'm not kidding. Just close your eyes and try to walk around for an hour. If you've never let a blind person with them on your shoulder, thank God that you don't have to do that daily. Just your sight alone is enough for you to rejoice in. If you didn't have your sight your entire life and was given sight today, what would you do? You'd be the happiest person, on the most joyful, thankful person on the face of the planet, wouldn't you? And yet God has given you far more than just your sight. He's given you hearing. He's given you health. He's given you family. And the list goes on and on and on. Israel fell into that trap. They let their earthly desires crowd out an eternal perspective. So I finish with this verse. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Keep your, head, your mind there. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above and not on the things of earth. I finish with this question. Is there an earthly desire keeping you from having an eternal perspective? Amen.
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. The Lord's going to slam with the sword of his mouth. Don't get caught up in thinking Satan's going to get away with anything, that this Antichrist is going to get away with anything, not at all. God is actually going to use him to accomplish his purpose, to allow his judgment to come upon those who rejected Christ. That's what it's about, as we're going to see. Notice, we're going to see the power behind this lawless one and his purpose. Look at verse 9, coming back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When Christ comes again, the lawless one's dust. And now you have an explanation. That is, speaking of the lawless one, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because... They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. told you today, it's a serious message. The Lord has brought you today. This is a serious message. And I don't want one person here who isn't saved to leave here without trusting in Christ. You may think you know Christ. Maybe you're on your deathbed. You may think you know him, but trust in the Lord. Believe in him. Get your sins forgiven before it's too late. You don't want to be standing before him saying, Give me water for my tongue. I'm in agony because of this flame. Send someone to tell my brothers about this place. You don't want to be doing that. So here we have an explanation. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. The term activity, operative power of Satan. Satan's going to give him all his operative power for those last three and a half years. And notice what precipitates that. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. We talked about this before. We're going to see a scene in heaven. We don't get to see this stuff, but we see it in Scripture. It's amazing. A scene in heaven. And this happens in the middle of the tribulation. That's seven years before Jesus comes, right in the middle. And it precipitates this man getting all of Satan's power. You'll see what happens to cause this to happen. Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels. Michael's the head angel and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. We know initially the dragon, when he fell, Satan fell, he took a third of the angels. And we know he fell to earth, but yet he has access. Job, he comes up, presents himself, accuses the brethren day and night, but that's going to be taken away. Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they, that's those who were accused, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That would be us, if you're a believer. We'll be there at this time. We'll be able to look at each other and remember this day, right? And we'll be praising God for what he's doing. 
because it came true, which all will. Woe to the earth and the sea. Notice this, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. This is what precipitates Satan giving this Antichrist all his power. Look at chapter 13. Notice we have the beast introduced here, and that's the part of Revelation. Revelation 12, Satan introduced a relationship to Israel and Jesus. Chapter 13, the beast introduced. Okay, That's the theme of Revelation here. Verse 13, And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. That's the beast. And notice he's coming out of the sea. That's a prophetic reality like Daniel shares. He's a Gentile. I think the false prophet's a Jew, but the beast is going to be a Gentile, the Antichrist. He says, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and his heads were blaster stains. I'm going through a lot. Don't worry about it. We've talked about it. You can get the CD. It's just talking about that he is basically intricately aligned with Satan and the kingdoms that Satan has had since he became the god of this world after falling. You can look at Revelation 12.3 and then chapter 17 of Revelation. And then notice, he says, and verse 2, and the beast which... I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like a lion. This description mirrors Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, and it reveals that the final beast is like the four previous kingdoms. Okay, then a second half, verse 2. And the dragon, this is what I want to get to, gave him all his power, his throne, and great authority. This is where the Antichrist gets all of Satan's power, authority, and throne. This is when he declares himself to be God in the temple. This is when all hell literally breaks loose. This is when the man of lawlessness is fully revealed. And keep reading. And I saw one of his heads that could be a kingdom that he did, or it could be him, as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Evidently, we have him appearing to be slain or, you know, and having a false resurrection. Right? And the whole earth was amazed. And followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? Worship's just giving them an exaltation, by the way. Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And there was given a mouth to him speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given. That's three and a half years And so here we have, in the middle of the tribulation, the beast is given all Satan's power and authority, and God is going to allow him to have his way for three and a half years so that it will accomplish God's purposes. Even the beast's wickedness will accomplish God's purposes. Look at verse 6. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. That's who he dwells, the church, right? Those in heaven, right? And it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. Bad time. If you know this and you were told us the Thessalonians, you're going through this, they'd be going, oh, we don't want to go through that. Right? They're not. And so he says here, authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, nation was given to him, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. So they're going to be deceived by lying signs and wonders. And look at it. 
Then there's a false prophet, which aids the beast in these flying signs, which we're going to see in our passage. Look at verse 9. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power, science, one, and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. Of wickedness. And go back, your finger back in 13. I wanted to read this portion also in Revelation 13. Verse 11, And I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like the dragon. This is the false prophet, the beast's little right-hand man. Okay? Revelation 13, 12 now. And he exercises all the authority of the fourth beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs. Here you go. This is what our pastor is talking about. So that he makes fire come down out of heaven to earth in the presence of men. Remember, Satan's got power. You know, not everything that happens is God's doing. He allows it. Remember the book of Job? Satan brought a wind that crushed the house that killed Job's family. That was Satan that did that. And so he says here, and performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of what? The signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling all who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there will be given to him to give breath to the image. This image is going to come alive, these signs and wonders. This is a time of total deception. He says, image of the beast. And that image of the beast might even speak and cause many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and great, the rich and poor, and the free and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy and sell except the one who has the mark, either in the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Back in our passage again, it says that he's going to do, he's going to be given the operative power of Satan with lying signs and wonders. It's very interesting. With Satan's operative power, he's going to have with all power, that's dunamis. That word is translated miracles in other places. Powers, signs, those are signs that's showing something to point somebody to something. And wonders, here it says false wonders. And it's interesting, these three words... Powers or miracles, signs, and wonders are affirming a counterfeit Antichrist with counterfeit signs. Remember what affirmed Jesus? The true signs, wonders, and miracles. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God by miracles, same thing, powers, wonders, and signs. There's going to be a false attesting to this Antichrist. And people are going to buy into it. We see this with this beast. We saw it with the image coming alive and speaking and all that stuff, which you just read in chapter 13. And so back in our passage, verse 9, that is the one who's coming is in accord with the operative power, that's what that word activity means, of Satan, with all power or even transcendent miracles, signs and false wonders. And then notice verse 10, and with all the deception of wickedness. His deceptive, wicked coming. People are going to be deceived, and they're going to follow. 
to their judgment. The whole world, apart from a remnant that gets saved, and many of them get slaughtered, remnant that gets saved, the world is ripe for its being led to its final destination, which is hell. So he says here, and with all the deception of wickedness, verse 10, for those who, what, perish. Why do they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The term perish is used in Scripture often. It speaks of being utterly ruined or being destroyed. It points to destruction that will come through the judgment and eternal judgment that comes from Christ for people's sins. If you reject Christ, you will die in your sins. You will pay the penalty in eternity. You will perish. But you're going to perish of your own volition. You're going to perish because you chose to perish. And there's no time in eternity that you could say that it wasn't your own fault. Because he says here, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. This is an interesting because in Greek. A lot of becauses in Greek, different words. This one has an extra sense to it that means because and in return. It actually adds that in. It's the same word that's used when the angel speaks to Zechariah in Luke one twenty when he reproves him and says, because you didn't believe, you're going to be mute. In return for that, you're going to be mute, Zechariah. So that in our passage, in return for not receiving the love of the truth so as to be saved, you're going on to your eternal damnation. You see, he's talking about reception of the gospel, the truth concerning Jesus who died for our sins and rose from the dead. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. You see, they rejected the truth. And instead of accepting it in their heart and loving it and believing it, they didn't believe. Notice this term, receive the love of the truth, is in parallel with believing. Look at verse 11. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who what? did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. You see, the truth is the wages of sin is death. The truth is God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. He is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. That's the truth. And he sent his son Jesus to die in our place. He bore our sins in his body on the cross in our place. And when you believe in Christ, which means you need to believe you're sinful and need a Savior, and you call upon Him, you will be saved. But if you reject that, then this is your destiny, because you love wickedness. So in our passage, it's a scary thing. The Bible makes it clear that people get convicted, and they choose not to believe. And then God allows them to be hardened. And if you're that way and you're hardened today, I'd be praying, Lord God, Unharden my heart so that I would not sit through this and not be saved. Let me share a few passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 118, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those being saved it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, Paul says in the terms of the gospel going out, we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. Hey, what we share, it's life. But he says, and among those who are perishing, he says, to the one, the aroma of death to death, and the aroma of life to life. 
It's life to one, death to the other. When you hear this gospel today, you reject it. It's the fragrance of death. It's the smell of death for your eternity. Don't hold off. Don't harden your heart. One last passage. It should scare you to death. Kids should scare you too if you don't know Christ. And even if our gospel is veiled, 2 Corinthians 4.3, it is veiled to those who are perishing, to whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. When you reject Christ, when you're being convicted, if you reject that, you don't trust in Christ, God allows you to be blinded, and you're on your way to your judgment. Don't do it. Pray. Help me to not be hardened. Help me not to go. I guarantee you'll be reminded of this day in eternity if you're in your sins. You heard the gospel. So verse 11, why would God allow this to happen? Why would God allow this man to be empowered and to take all that authority for those three and a half years? Why would he do that? Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. This is the reason. This is the reason. He's going to allow the earth to get to that point. He's going to remove his restraint. The gospels have been going out through the church. He's going to remove that restraint. He's going to allow the man of lawlessness to be revealed and then lead the world in total to its judgment. And then Christ will come, slay his enemies, and establish his kingdom on earth. For this reason, God will send a deluding influence because they didn't receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, that they might believe what is false. God's gracious. The Lord Jesus was in Israel for three and a half years. He was there for three years ministering. Well, he's in there obviously his whole life, but he's ministering for three years. And Israel had a chance to respond. They heard the truth, but then they hardened their hearts. They closed their ears. And so God veiled it from them so that they would go to their judgment. One last passage. Turn to Matthew 13. You see, Jesus all of a sudden had been, he'd been speaking clearly about the kingdom for years. Then all of a sudden he starts speaking in parables. Now the false teachers will say, oh, he's giving stories so they'll understand better. No, that's not true. He's sharing to hide the truth so that people who have rejected him would go to their judgment. Matthew 13.10 And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Why the change? It's been three years. He's been speaking clearly to them. And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In whose case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. Listen why. Here's the reason why. For the heart of this people has become dull. And their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, means repent, and I heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. God allows you to be hardened and deceived to your own destruction. And the world as a whole will go that way. And that's the day of the Lord. 
And the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, Thessalonians, you're not going through that. Don't let anyone deceive you. That's not going to happen unless this guy's revealed and all this happens, and that's not happened. And what he wants them to do is stand firm, to stand firm in the Word, to hold firm so they don't get taken captives. Look at verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians 2. So then, brethren, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter from us. Hold to the word of God. God's going to judge sin. And if you have rejected and not believed the truth, he's going to allow you to be hardened unto your judgment. And if you're saying, ah, whatever, you know, right now, and you're hardened right now, I'd be praying, oh God, please break my hard heart. Please till the soil. Help me believe. Help me in my unbelief before it's too late. This may be the last opportunity. You may die tonight. This may be your last day on this earth. It's appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you're in a position today to cry out to God, to lift a veil, do so. Lift the veil from my eyes. Help me see my sin so I would believe. But what about us for believers? Remember, these Thessalonians were on the verge of being taken captive by false teachers. They were on the verge of being shaken up and disturbed in their difficulties because someone was twisting the Word of God. We need to hold firm to the truth so that we are not taken captive in the midst of the difficulties that we go through as believers for Jesus Christ. Hold to the truth. Don't believe lies. We're not destined for wrath, but for salvation.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.